Welcome to the Mixtape with Scott. I'm the host, Scott Cunningham. I'm a professor at Baylor University in the economics department. And this week we are finishing part two of an interview with Nick Cox. Nick Cox, uh, from many of us know, uh, from Stata, the statistical software company that basically provided many of us in uh, microeconomics that are at least my age. Uh, pushing 50 or pushing 60. Um, I'm pushing 50. Um, uh, gave us the tools for, Stata gave us the tools for us to do our jobs. And as I tell Nick in this, you never really know how public goods uh, work. Probably many of us owe publications to Nick Cox, or even there's someone out there who was at the margin of getting tenure and somehow in the complicated way that science is produced and depends upon people for providing code, providing programs that help people do their jobs, they got tenure, they got an award, they got a raise, their family did better. And this is um, a real honor to get to hear this story. It's a history of computing. It's a history of software and statistics. And it's the story. It's it's a story. It's a there is no such thing as the story. It's always curated, filled with selection bias, um, filled with confirmation biases, as you think that people say things and and maybe it's really you projecting. But but Nick is a part. This is a part of Nick's story. And as I tell him in the interview, he is a part, whether he likes it or not, he is a part of the economics story of the last 50 years. And it's a it's a real I, I hope that all of us can show him the respect that he deserves by listening to his story and and send him our love and appreciation um, for for being a a person who goes first. Um, there's a paper. You can Google it. Um, I love it. It's a game theoretic paper. It was in games and economic behavior. Um, and it's got a really funny title. It's uh uh, department chair, crying babies, and cleaning toilets. And it's about the private provision of public goods. Um, and it's a particular kind of public good where if you really sort of think about, there's really two kinds of public goods, you might say. There's one public good that when you produce it, you get all the credit. Everyone looks at you and marvels. It's these giant pyramids. It's these fireworks. Everybody sees that you made it. And it's beautiful. Um, and there's a benefit to you. And, you know, the market doesn't provide them well or whatever. But like when people do do them, um, we all celebrate them. There's another kind of public good. And they do these kinds of public goods people do not get credit for. Um, because these are the public goods where if the person didn't provide it, all hell would break loose. Uh, and that is the peace and quiet of a home because someone's rocking the baby. It's a it's it's a nice bathroom. It's uh, a functioning, well functioning, healthy department that you have because a department chair steps up and does all the work to create a community. And in some ways, I think Nick is both of those because there are there are uh, programs that that he created. Uh, that have been tremendously helpful. But but I also think that Nick, by his constantly showing up every single day and giving to this giving out there into the world, creating these tools, 
or creating this um, equilibrium. Uh, had he not, it might've been a smelly bathroom. It might've been a loud den from a crying baby or a dysfunctional department um, instead of, a, of us having toys. And I just wanted to say to Nick, um, on behalf of uh, many people in economics, um, we are deeply appreciative of everything you have done over these several decades to help give us tools to do the research, to be, to satisfy our curiosity and hope add to the tapestry of this profession uh, and the scientific body of knowledge. So thank you, Nick, and thank you for tuning in. This is part two of an interview with Nick Cox at Durham University, uh, the legend and the goat. Thanks a lot. Okay, this is part two in an interview with uh, Nick Cox, a professor in the geology department in Durham in England. I'm Scott Cunningham, the host of the Mixtape with Scott. And uh, this is part two of a two-part interview. I haven't done this before. Uh, talked about doing it, but I haven't done this before. But uh, Dr. Cox and I didn't get to finish. So I wanted to just kind of briefly say we've been talking about his career as a professor, talking about his time growing up in England. And then we began moving into his time, uh, his interest in statistics, as well as his interest in Stata, the statistical software company that for decades has been basically the primary uh, most treasured uh, piece of software on the computer of every empirical microeconomist I've ever met. And so we're kind of picking up where we left off, but at the same time, I wanted it to be a, a, a good conversation that's just flowing. So we're going to start off with an icebreaker again, but Nick, thanks for coming back a second time to talk with me. It's really nice. That's great. Okay. All right. So here's another icebreaker. If money and time were no object, what would you be doing right now? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I mean, the the, the answer of uh, writing my talk, which is due next week, uh, <laughs> it's not a good answer, probably. <laughs> um, um, well, okay, uh, okay. I'm going to be very boring and say I've got a bit of a green conscience about traveling, which I have enjoyed greatly in the past. Um, I'm. <clears throat> A bigger is a slightly more interesting answer. I'd want a bigger house to uh, house my books. Oh there yeah. You, you you. What kind of books are on the? What kind of books are on your in your library? Well, this is this is just a room at home. This is not my workplace. And uh, well, there's sort of all sorts. A lot of technical books, but by no means even the majority of technical books in a mess behind me. Yeah, a lot of technical books, like uh, your scientific technical or even computing or what? Uh, some computing books. Most of my technical stuff's at work, but uh, some of it's here. I mean, the uh, uh, context for everyone, of course, is COVID, which uh, I'm not too worried about now, but uh, it changed a lot of habits. So like many professionals, I work more from home than I used to. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm just uh, 20 minutes walk away from work, uh, I still work from home. Yeah. Uh, more than I used to. Yeah. 
that you read a lot. That's what I'm picking up. You're a big reader. That's uh, fact. Come on, Joe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what when you're reading for leisure? What kind of books are you reading? Oh, I'm into novels as well, and uh, uh, well, you know, by definition, one doesn't read complete trash because complete trash is some of the stuff you don't read. But yeah. I do go as far as uh, what do you call mysteries and uh, yeah. definitely and, uh, historical novels and classic novels and so on. What mystery? What mystery have you read recently that you'd recommend? Okay, well, there's an American one. Uh, William Gould, who some people will know, started off Stata, got me on to uh, Nero Wolf. Hmm. And Nero Wolf, uh, just so everyone's on the same page, Nero Wolf's the detective, and there were many novels written by Rex Stout, uh, hmm. starting in 1934, I think, and hmm. finishing, well, not even finishing with his death because they found a manuscript that they published about a decade after his death. But Nero Wolf is a, a you know very good detective. That's the point of the story, and he's got his quirks, and uh, he tends to solve uh, almost all his problems by sitting at home and uh, getting people to find out things. And uh, mm. uh, like many mysteries, there's a sort of uh, formulaic side to it. And <laughs> if you enjoy yeah. it, you enjoy it. If you don't, it irritates the heck out of you. <laughs> right, so, right. So, the formula is very much that almost always there is a concluding uh, meeting in his own house in which mm -hmm. all the suspects are uh, gathered together and then it's revealed who did the murder. Because that happens in other... In other uh, yeah, it's like a clue. Writer, well, that's like it a, happens in Christie quite a lot. Yeah, that's like a clue-like uh, feel. or Yeah, that that's more of a... That's more of a trope now with mysteries. I feel like I see that with like Knives Out and things like that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so absolutely. he was doing it first. He was doing it early. Oh, I don't know. Uh, well, wouldn't claim that. Wouldn't claim oh, okay. That. It's from Sherlock Holmes, so it's not a not a universal pattern in Sherlock Holmes, but mm -hmm. I think it's in some Sherlock Holmes stories. I bet in England, Sherlock Holmes is a real treasured character. Is that right? Well, yes, and of course, you know, there, there are at least two sides. Though. The first is very simple, which is that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, British, and uh, most of them are set in 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 London or near London. Uh, uh -huh. Some, so they're set in Britain. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, yes, I mean there is a kind of cult, and it's based mostly on real places with some twists. Baker Street in London is a real street, although <laughs> he didn't actually live there. Yeah. Uh, he lived somewhere else. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll slip in a, a little twist uh, about that, which is that, that uh, Holmes's nemesis, uh, or main, main antagonist, is Moriarty. Right. And there are a couple of little bits in there about uh, Moriarty being a professor of mathematics. Mm. And a bit where he says that he's, he's a writer of a celebrated treatise on the binomial theorem. And there's another yeah. bit where it's, uh, it's celebrated that uh, for, for his work on the dynamics of an asteroid. Now, a detail in the books is that he was a professor in a small northern university. 
Mm. And this has been identified facetiously as Durham, my own university. Oh. All I can say is there's no record of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's been expunged from the records. No doubt, that, because that famous the thesis? It's so ashamed that it was uh, the, the, the place of employment of Moriarty. Oh, uh, you can read into that way you want. Yeah, yeah. So if I dig through your your books, I'm not going to find that that dissertation on the binomial distribution that you said by Moriarty. The law. No, no. Uh, um, yeah, and if we keep going on that, um, of course, that's being quoted. Uh, but Nicholas Mayer wrote a sequel with uh, Holmes as a character, and he, he really twists the canon because. Uh, Holmes is revealed as uh, you know more than a drug addict and so on and so forth. <laughs> but at one point, there's a comment, the binomial theorem. And Moriarty himself denies it and says, who would write a book about the binomial theorem? Oh, so um, why would they do there that? Is, why, is, would he twist why, would, why would he take the... Do you, did they ever... Does, do people speculate as to why he would change that piece of the canon? I mean, that, well, that was just Conan Doyle. Uh, I don't. I mean, Conan Doyle was a medic before he was a writer. I uh -huh. suppose he knew about as much mathematics as you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, but but there, there could be a retort to the retort, which is there's plenty of scope for writing about that binomial theorem. Uh huh. Uh, you know, it's the cent. It's one of the central ideas in all sorts of mathematics. As most listeners will know. So, Nick, when did you really seem to have this turning point with statistics? I want to hear that again. Because I okay, feel well, I heard different things. Okay, well, let's let's go through it again. I mean, I, I certainly got interested in statistics in the sense of working with data quite young and even in the sense of uh, elementary methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, geography was certainly one route of that. Um, and then, you know, the way that I got a job mostly was by being someone willing to teach statistics to geographers. Mm. And uh, so I was always intrigued about how do you teach statistics to geographers who, I think it can be fairly sad, are not on average the most receptive audience. I mean, they're more numerate than uh, many other communities, but less numerate than many yet other yeah. communities. Yeah. And so one of the things that, um, you know, we didn't really mention this last time, but it's a, so it's a good uh, recap from a different perspective, as it were. One of the things I really got into in the middle 70s was the work of John Tukey, mm. laboratory data analysis. Uh, so he was pushing out papers, and then he published a major book, literally, Exploratory Data Analysis, in 1977. And almost the same time, there was a sequel, uh, Data Analysis and Regression, uh, with his friend and uh, colleague, uh, Frederick Mustella. And particularly, um, he was pushing the idea that you can do a lot statistically by just graphing the data and introducing specific things like stem and leaf plots, yeah, which were not completely original, or box plots, which weren't completely original. Now, there's yet another twist there, which is that box plots were actually invented using different names by geographers. Mm. Now, that doesn't matter because... First of all, the names that geographers used, names like dispersion diagrams, uh -huh. 
I guess uh, dull and dreary, you know, beyond belief, you know, it's almost as bad as descriptive statistics, which doesn't sound very exciting to most people. Right. And Tukey, one of Tukey's uh, small elements of genius was that he was good on names. He was good on names. And so he, the, the word bit uh, in computing has been attributed to him, as, as has the word software, although there are mm. other claimants there. But the name Boxplot is just punchy and totally memorable and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, easy to explain and easy to remember, relatively speaking, anyway. Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, um, whether he invented it or not or reinvented it, it's just a small historical question. Mm. The thing of interest to me was not just using some of this stuff in my own work, but this uh, being useful as a vehicle for teaching um, geographers. Now, geographers are not uh, ungraphical in any sense. Uh, they're highly graphical, and you know they can claim to be the people who invented maps. Mm-hmm. There's a clarity about that because anybody who invented a map, we just call him a geographer by ret- in retrospect, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but geographers are very um, open to graphics, and uh, it seemed to me that that was a good way in. Um, mm. In any case, a lot of the machinery that's been uh, used, or particularly significance testing, is arguably overused anyway. So, but that's a different story. But that's 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 partly how I got into graphics, which was, as it were, a rediscovery of my geographical roots as well as uh, everybody else's. Wow! And uh, and the data was an excellent vehicle for that. I mean, there are plenty of things that were implemented. I mean, there have been box spots in Stata since, uh, good question, but uh, I think about 1990, some sort of implementation of box. Yeah, about 1990, if not earlier. And, uh, but, but, you know, Stata was a good way to draw, you know, a lot of these things that Tukey was drawing. And What were uh, people using? What were your colleagues using before Stata? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, there was, and in some sense, still is, a drawing office. In other words, that technicians would draw diagrams for you, um, oh. and often, often pre-computer, mm-hmm. often pre-computer. So if you go back to the start of my career, you know that was how most people got their diagrams. They weren't using computers at all; they were using trained technicians. To draw them for them, and those mm-hmm. people weren't using computers either. Um, so, Stata uh, early on was very strong in graphics. Yes, yes. I mean, not absolutely at the start, because absolutely at the start, um, it essentially was a you know an analog of a typewriter you know, on a on a monitor. But graphics came pretty early. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, if this is written up, of course, if you want to find it, it's written up in various places. Um, quite when graphics were added, but it was it was very early on. Mm. It's very early on because Stata was riding on the back of uh, early PCs, right? And, and and it was written or marketed um, largely for PCs. Now they have those VGA cards and things like that. The PCs yeah, did exactly. and stuff, right? Right. I mean, Stata developers themselves, um, 
mostly have not been using DOS or Windows, but they, they write because the majority of the market is probably for DOS or Windows, although I don't know about the figures anymore. Yeah. Because so many people use some flavor of Unix, either directly or indirectly, and of course, Macs now using some sort of flavor of Unix as well. So um, all those platforms have been supported for a long, long time. Well, I have like a theory that I want to, uh, a theory of you, which is sort of like <laughs> obviously presumptuous, but now that I have you, I kind of want to tell you my theory of you and uh, you sort of help me walk it back and find the parts that are, that are incorrect and true. So I'm going to sort of say this first by sharing an anecdote about myself. So I mentioned this when I moved to, from Mississippi, Mississippi is a very poor rural state at the bottom of the United States. And um, when I moved there, my dad was a computer programmer and, um, and slowly the personal computer kind of made his work obsolete. So we move, he starts over in Memphis, Tennessee, which is, uh, and we live in the suburbs of Memphis, Tennessee. And he had an IBM PS2 model 30. And I was in the eighth grade. It had a 2400 uh, baud modem. And um, I started a bulletin board and it was for hackers and crackers and fracking and all that stuff. And, and back then the bulletin boards for hackers would, you know, you would have, you'd be like in a club, you would like start a club. And, um, but it was before email or rather you didn't have email bulletin boards did not have email. You would just, you know, all of your messages and stuff were at one place. So it was this shareware software called FidoNet, And it's probably one of the few times I've ever read the documentation of anything. <laughs> I had to, you know, I had to like figure out how to use it. And then I would use these hacks long distance dialing codes. And I would just call every night and FidoNet would go to each bulletin board, collect the website every, and then redistribute everything so that there was like a harmonize. It was like a ring of identical bulletin boards to a degree. It was one of the most meaningful things I had done as a kid because I felt like I brought together a lot of people and, you know, that impulse of mine just to bring people together is is kind of a deep thing in my DNA. So that's the backdrop. And I wanted to talk a little bit to you about not just like the statistics part of Stata. I wanted to just ask, you know, to what degree did Stata for you and your involvement in Stata become like a community where you were bringing people together? Because of all the open open source well, in the listserv, it just seems like, you know, I'm curious a little bit about that history and you in it. Well, Stata is, uh, it's not unique in this respect, but, but the, it, there is a combination of two things. The first is it's proprietary software, uh, which means, as you know very well, that ultimately someone has to pay for it if they got access to it. But second of all, it's uh, an environment in which people can distribute code. And that flavor of it is, is almost predominantly open source and freeware as well. Mm -hmm. Now, there are very few people who are outside Stata Core, write Stata programs, and want money for them. 
Yeah. At this moment, I can think of one person who does that. One person right? will write code one for person. Stata and sell it? I've actually never even heard of that. Well, no, 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 sorry. What I'm saying is there's one person who writes code and then sells it. I don't think they write uh, custom code. Mm. Now, there are, you know, there are the other extreme people who, you know, will do assignments for students and so on and so forth. So we're going to mention that and then move on. Um, but, but you know, if we're talking about professionals, you know, basically smart graduate students upwards, then the vast majority of what those people do in Stata is stuff that uh, they're willing to make public. Yeah, I say willing to make public. You got you got a you know spectrum because you've got all sorts of people working on all sorts of specific projects, and they're writing do files to read in that data and do data management on that data. And and usually they're willing to make that public because that's what the world expects of them. You know, if you're an economist and you do a particular project on microeconomics and you got a data set, then at some point if you're going to be taken seriously and you're going to get a publication out of this. Increasingly, people expect to see your code. Yeah. So there's a level to it. But the other level to it is whenever people are writing general programs, then there's a culture of being free. And I think I think it's a sort of mix of the 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 uh, commercial side, you know, the business side, and the academic side. That mm. what academics should be doing is doing research and making public the fruits of that research. Yeah. Which of course includes any code that they write. Right. Um, so, so Stata is this sort of funny mix. Now, it's not unique in that respect. I mean, the, the closest analog I can think of is MATLAB, mm. where you know there is a program that is sold and there's a company behind it. But the overwhelming culture is that whatever code people make public is made public freely. And and let's backtrack a bit because contrary to what people occasionally say, a great deal of Stata is open in the sense that it's a do code. And if you have Stata, uh, you can look at that a do code. Mm -hmm. Now, there's plenty of stuff that's hidden because it's in an executable or something like that. And there's C code that's being compiled and there's meta code that's being compiled and there's Java code and so on and so forth. But you know, that's what the company charges you for, and uh, that you know, <laughs> if you don't want it, don't buy it, as it were. Yeah. Um, oh, it's a funny kind of mixture. But to come back to the point, which was about community, right? That that is a very large fraction of what the community is about. It's about sharing code. Now, it's an interesting point that Bill Gould used to make repeatedly at meetings. Um, Stata is to be thought of as a kind of statistical operating system. In other words, it's not purporting in any sense to be every statistics thing you might ever want to do. I mean, that's essentially impossible because, uh, yeah. you know, people are coming up with new methods every day and uh, Stata is not going to try and sort of keep up with that. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's meant to be an operating system in which you can write code that you want whether that's a do file, which is just something to do with a particular data set and some stuff, 
or whether it's something that's more ambitious in the sense of being more general, uh, which is what uh, uh, you're talking about community. Um, my rough estimate is that there are thousands of people contributing state of packages in some sense or another beyond the community, the company, which is not 1,000 large, I can tell you. Uh, but um, uh, so that, that's community. And the community, I suppose, really uh, exists on that level of publishing code. It exists in terms of meetings. It exists in terms of the journal. It exists in terms of statalist. And of course, anywhere else where people want to discuss uh, stata. I mean, there's fair amount of back and forth about stata on places like Twitter or Facebook or mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Is it on TikTok? Hashtag stata talk. Um, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Well, how did you get involved in the community aspect? Because I can't think, I can only think of a couple of people that have been as uh as like a you know not just a public face of the the public good side of stata but really just in the weeds on it for decades how did you get how did you become so involved like from the beginning well uh it was a matter of going to meetings probably uh, and i was privileged to go to the very first users meeting in in london and i've been to users meetings in Britain, obviously, uh, the States, uh, Netherlands, Germany, France, uh, Sweden, Spain, Italy, Poland, Australia. So not not all the meetings that have ever held been held, obviously, but uh, you know quite a lot of countries. So that you that's, prioritized that's... those meetings. Is that accurate? You prioritized them early in your career, or when it started happening, you were like, "This is the conference I'm going to go to." Uh, it wasn't a decision. It just became, as it were, you know, obvious enough. I mean, uh, we, can, we can have a, you know, big conversation about meetings. I mean, lots of disciplines have really, really, really big meetings, you know, and there's often a sort of, you know, one big annual meeting that people yeah. feel obliged to go to with, you know, thousands of people sometimes and, you know, hundreds of sessions and this and that and the other. And uh, geography has that too, but uh, all I can say personally is that the most fruitful meetings for me have been with a few hundred people or yeah. sometimes smaller. And, uh, you know, there's the right balance between meeting some old friends and meeting new people. And uh, there's the right sort of mix of uh talks and uh, meals and uh, you know big gaps with with breaks where you can just chat away and stuff in the evenings yeah, yeah interesting detail or maybe interesting uh, <laughs> i quoted marcel earlier Frederick marcella said do not as a writer tell me what is interesting i as a reader will decide what is interesting right. anyway contradicting that rule a detail i think may be interesting is that Stadium meetings have always been single thread in the sense that there aren't parallel sessions. And that comes probably from an early idea, which is, well, you know, let's have two strands 
I remember this being said of early London meetings. Let's have a strand for the economists mm. and let's have a strand for the biostatisticians. Mm. I went, personally, well, I'm a geographer. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Walk around London while the other guys are listening. But but there was a strong flavor of, well, you know, uh, just have one strand. And if you don't care about stuff, well, you can, you know, look at your laptop and pretend you're making notes, but you're really answering your emails. So you can keep half an ear open. Uh, and sometimes you hear stuff about what's going on. So I think, you know, the biostatisticians are very interested in the way that economists are moving forward with difference in difference and all that kind of stuff, it, you know, immensely more about than I do. And sometimes, you know, the, the economists uh, like to learn a bit from what the biostatisticians sure. are doing. And there are other groups too. Yeah. I think, I think what is also important about stadium meetings, a lot of people have said this, is that there is an absence of the disciplinary pecking order stuff and you know, trying to sort of impress people and, yeah. and trying to pull in people who are too bumptious or whatever. I mean, I, I've heard that economists, this is your reputation, and in turn you can refute it or deny it if you think it's completely absurd. I've heard economists very occasionally have been pretty sharp with each other about uh, what they perceive as a bad, uh, bad content. Yeah. Uh, stadium meetings are pretty friendly. I mean, very occasionally there's a dud and, you know, no one will stand up and say, this is, a, you know, this is stinking garbage. It's just a sort of silence and we move on to the next paper and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a feedback loop in which people are pretty nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, encouraged to be nice because other people are being nice. And the, you might say in a break, well, that wasn't very good. I wasn't very impressed with that. Yeah. But that's that's where it stops, really. That's I wonder if that's, you know, because nobody is being compensated to provide this code and maybe even isn't getting cited, too. In econ, we don't cite very – I mean, I did cite a – I did cite – I just got a publication and I did cite recently. But it's, you know, I don't think you – it's very uncommon. You you will cite the the author of the theoretical estimator – but you won't say where what you did it in. And so, you know, it seems like if that's the case, then the what if you think like an economist where you think of this is costly labor and you have to provide this labor, it, it seems like there's got to be some compensation. And I would think being mean to each other is not it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that you got to be a sadist for that to be the thing. Is that true? Is there, you know, you've got a selection of altruistic people or what's the gain to these what's the what's the payout to all these people that are just consistently year after year providing these public goods well that's a really good question it's a bundle of questions but uh we're going to keep going for the full hour with those questions yeah <laughs> let, let, let me try and take them one by one uh, okay. not necessarily in any good order um first of all citations i think you touched on a really important point um, if you want to be pushing up your citations, you don't do that by writing code mostly. And it's another feedback loop, but it works in another direction that journals don't usually encourage or inspect, uh, expect uh, citations of programs. Um, and sometimes authors even have to fight to get uh, people acknowledged. 
that's what it is. Um, that's what it is. But I suppose that means it, what that means is that uh, you're not trying to be very competitive about it. Right. Uh, another answer, of course, is that in the first instance, people usually write programs because they want them for themselves. Yeah, right. So that's that's a serious answer. I mean, I, I, I think majority of what I've ever written, I wanted to use it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's really no cost to you if uh, someone else is using it. You know, you just make it public and... And you can get benefit too because people can find bugs, they can find you know uh, gaps in the documentation and improve your work too. Yeah. So yeah, we're t- talking economically. There's not much extra cost because it's relatively easy to make your stuff public. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, moving on. I think. I think. I mean, I. I'd like to bring in not just writing code, but the whole question of being involved in a community like Statalist. And the, 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 the overarching question is, why should anyone want to do this? Yeah. Okay. I think that's related to what you're saying. Yeah. In fact, I can think of someone who uh, was very big in the state for a while. I'm not going to name names, but they're very big. and They're not widely known about, but they made major contributions to Stato. And they said just to me, why would anyone answer anybody else's questions haven't they got their own work to do Mm. now that may make that person seem like a sort of very self-centered person in fact their 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 daily practice was to help other people yeah just in different ways just in different ways but it's a good question would anyone else sort of you know hover there you know haven't you got your own job (laughs) the answer is usually they do and I think you mentioned altruism earlier. I think it has to start with altruism. That you, you know, you're you're reading some stuff on a, in a forum, and you think, I know the answer to that. Yeah, I can help this guy out. Mm-hmm. So there is simple altruism. And then you've got, as it were, the next level on, which I call a little bit grandly reciprocity or gift exchange. And a lot of social, yeah. social science know a lot about gift exchange, and it's just like, you know, you give your friends and relations presents and by and large you expect them to give you presents and send you cards at you know major holidays and so forth and there's a kind of ritualized gift exchange and Mm -hmm. one one big friend said if i expect people to answer my questions i should feel obliged to answer theirs if i can right that's a powerful principle um i haven't finished my little list yet i got a little mental list on this let's try and get through them all uh, teaching, I think a lot of people just enjoy teaching. Yeah. And anybody who's taught knows one of the benefits of uh, teaching is you understand the stuff better. Better. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think a lot of people, as it were, you, you do some stuff, let's say as an undergraduate, and then you do as a graduate student, and you sort of go around the stuff repeatedly. And then at some point, if you go far enough, you're obliged to teach the stuff yourself, and you suddenly realize, well, I've been bluffing my way for the last decade on that, but now I need to teach it to someone else. And most people usually manage to sort of think up some slightly different way of explaining things, some twist on yeah. things, or they realize that stuff isn't in the literature, and they gain themselves. You know, it's not just their job. You know, it's your job to teach this stuff. You gain yourself by trying to teach it. And I think I think that's a benefit. For many people. Yeah. And then there's what, uh, again, I'm quoting someone else who said this, uh, the Sudoku aspect. 
pronounce that in the correct way, please. Um, namely, there's there's a problem on Stata, and I would like to be able to solve that. And right. also, people, um, you know, fortunately for the rest of us, there are people who just fall in love with a particular software, and they, you know, they just 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 appeals in the right sort of way, and they think, right, I like this stuff, and I want to get better, or even I like this stuff, and I want to keep uh, in the game. You know, this idea that if you're a pianist or a violin player or a guitar player, you just have to keep practicing all the time to stay good or get totally. good in the first. Yeah. And and you know, you know, there's a minority of people in the community who just love Stata, and the way that they stay good and get better is by solving problems. And sometimes, sometimes there's a benefit that, um, you know, you, you learn something you want to use yourself. I mean, I, I, someone posed a problem years ago about uh, finding duplicates. Mm -hmm. And a friend and I got together over the internet and we wrote a command that was later read into Stata, uh, built into Stata, official Stata. And uh, it was in the first instance just a programming problem. It was moderate fun. And then I had the problem myself for real in a data set. You know, I needed to find duplicates in a, uh, a large data set. And so I thought, oh, yeah. So I actually wrote that tool years ago. And I didn't, didn't want it myself, but I could see why people wanted it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then. Well, I'm almost there. I think it does my little list. And if I'm not, it doesn't matter. I think, you know, for a few people, and perhaps this is quite close to revelation, you know, being a state of person is part of that brand, as it were. Someone mm. said to me, like an economist who works, uh, let's just work this out mentally, an economist who works roughly 100 miles away from where you are. Mm. Um said, uh, that's your brand, isn't it, Nick? And I thought, well, I never thought of it that way, but being a state of person is, in a sense, part of my brand, whatever. Yeah, right. And so, you know, if you've got that brand, uh, then you need to maintain it. Right. Um, totally get that. Yeah. So anyway, that's about as far as probably well, want to go. you know, this so, issue that you've brought up, I guess I'm dancing around it a little bit, but I'll just say it, you know, Open source elements for the economist are it actually very similar to what that man said, which is why would anybody do it? Because in economics, the public good is notoriously underprovided through voluntary exchange, you know, and yet public goods are really common in computing. You know, they just go back a long way, you know, but even within Stata, what we're talking about is that there were all these public goods and maybe even, you know, the Stata's success, ironically, comes from public goods, not just the the sharing of the software, but just really the voluntary, the voluntary provision of public goods. And we have, there's a famous paper in economics about churches and they were saying, you know, the reason why they make them wear weird clothes and make them like not drink alcohol and not have sex is so that they can drive out the free riders. And so, you know, I was just thinking we did economists didn't invent the idea of tragedy of the commons, but, you know, 
it came from the, the ecology, but I see tragedy of the commons all the time in these online communities, you know, they just get run over with trolls. They just get run over with people that just don't really realize that the commons in online community is things like monopolizing or somehow creating a congestion where the information's not, it's like, and I guess I've always thought, and this is one of the things I want to ask you. I I've always thought, you know, myself, I think Nick is trying to manage a tragedy, the commons problem in the listserv by being someone who is teaching people regularly, not code, but teaching people the culture of the listserv. And I just kind of wanted to ask you anything I said right there is, am I on to anything or, you know, like what the, what the listserv is about or that, and your involvement in it? Yeah. Um, well, how to get to this. I mean, well, my starting point would be that you look around and you find all sorts of different software with very different styles where people can contribute uh, with with minimal barriers to entry and you know exchange ideas and and as an economist, I would imagine that you would have some sort of analysis in terms of you know different products serve different sections of the market as it were so just to mention three, and we could mention other places that don't deserve discussion, but just to mention three, Statalist is a, a niche thing. Uh, there's not much point in participating unless you have an interest in Stata. And then you've got more general places like, say, Twitter and Facebook. That's enough examples. And um, obviously, I'm active on Statalist. I think what's very important for listeners is that Nobody can delete stuff or edit stuff except in posts that you post yourself within one hour of posting. In other words, once it's up, it's up, unless state of people take it down. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's in a sense very daring in that anybody could come along and say something pretty pretty obnoxious and the only sanction is the state of court will take it down now i don't know is that that different from say twitter or facebook or whatever uh i'm gonna leave that as an open question but i i think there are feedback loops in that people people are by and large conformists they do notice the way other people operate and they don't usually want to be an outlier mm. and that that's that's sometimes a very negative thing and it's sometimes a very positive thing in the case of statalist my take and there are others is this a positive thing that there is a fairly uh long established tradition of being civil being helpful mm -hmm. now there is a secondary question of what is civil and what is helpful because most questions, most questions on state list arise because you don't know something. Right. That's that's understandable. Yeah. And 
if you don't know something, um, the best response is to you know tell someone the answer as fast as you can. You know, to post clear, correct answers quickly so that people can see them. But sometimes, as you know very well, there's a discussion, and the flavor of the discussion is, uh, well, that's wrong because of this, you know, or, or something of the sort. Yeah. And people, I, I think people understandably often feel, as it were, that they're getting a lot of negativity. Um, because very often on state list, uh, a question just can't be answered immediately because people haven't provided enough information. And yeah. So there will be, you know, there are jokes about this, or I think they're supposed to be jokes about, you know, my posting, well, you know, you didn't post proper code or you didn't post a data example that people understand, or you didn't actually say what the error message was. Uh, I mean, there are two, two kinds of, uh, posts on state lists that don't get very far. And one more or less is, I tried X, but it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and the second is, what should I do in my project? Mm. Uh, or, you know, what's the answer to this assignment, which is uh, either a better or worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of those are difficult. Um, but, you know, we, we've had, you know, um, let's just think about it. We've got state list as... Um, a history that's going to be, assuming we get to 2024, there's a history that's going to be 30 years long next year. 1994, Statelist started. Mm. And uh, we've managed uh, to avoid too many major arguments uh, over the years. Mm. Where people got really angry with each other. I'm not sure you could say the same about other communities. Absolutely not. Why do you think y'all stay so civil? I mean... <clears throat> I feel like I'm kind of wanting you to talk about yourself and you're wanting to talk about the company, but I guess I'll just say, I, I, I see you as being very important part of this as someone that is shaping expectations and institutions, you know, for the way that economists talk about institutions is uh, you can even be a set of shared beliefs, you know? And so I, I see you as having been kind of the dean of the listserv for a long, long time. Um, and, you know, I, I guess that I was just kind of wondering, is that an accurate perception? I mean, I, I know you're, I think you kind of are a little more mo are, are modest and probably not comfortable, but is that what people might see you as in that community? Well, we could we could make it quantitative. I don't have the figures, but uh, I imagine that I've been the biggest single contributor over the years. But yeah. I want to—it's not just modesty; it's it's utterly factual that uh, the community could not exist without hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people who who answer the questions I don't answer. And right. there are lots of questions I I don't even know what on earth people are talking about. Yeah. I mean, I know sometimes that a field exists, you know, I mean, if I see difference in difference in a title of a question, I know it's not for me and, and many, many others. Mm -hmm. And that's not just because I'm not an economist. I mean, it applies to many other fields as well. But I mean, I like sort of low level questions on graphics and uh, data mm -hmm. management. I can answer a fair fraction of those and sometimes just statistics. 
got some hobby horses. Everyone's got hobby horses, but mine are pretty obvious if you watch the list for a while. No, you, you, uh, let, let's, as you say, <laughs> Uh, I'm talking about me, but in a sense, I don't want to talk about me. Uh, it's community. That's the really important uh, punchline there. Mm-hmm. Uh, bottom line there. Um, and, and you know, there are figures on this. But people come and go, and, you know, sometimes you think, oh, what happened to so-and-so? They were big in Stator, and then you discover that they've moved over to some one-letter software. And you think, the the oh, right, dark that's side. That's right. They The, the traitors. Right. <laughs> different. It's different. It's different. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. I'm kidding. Um, well, I, I would imagine. Oh, I'm just curious. What has been Stata's attitude towards you over the years? This volunteer, this volunteer labor. I mean, how have they communicated to you from the various presidents to the founder? What do they articulate that your value has been? Your value added. Uh, Stata are very generous. Yeah. I'm not an employee. Yeah, let's let's make it clear. I'm not an employee of Stata, except in one limited sense that I'm one of the editors of the Stata Journal, and that's not charitable. You know that that there are editorial fees there. And that's as much as I need to say on that. But Stata's very generous. They they know who I am. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, I would think they would be well, very, I would I, think I, that I, they would be very grateful. I haven't paid for my copy of Stata for a long while. I don't think that needs to be a secret. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. That's, but I would think that I guess in my mind, if I was president of the company, I just would, uh, you know, have to know that, like you said, the community is filled with people, and it is the work of the community. But oftentimes, it does really take someone to kind of constantly be the one to, you know, go first. You know, step out first. I think that in these online communities, it, it it usually there is a few people that that go first because they just in public goods, you typically get benefits because they're generally distributed, but you have to incur the cost. So it's always it's like a bit of a Nash equilibrium or it's dominant strategy, maybe to just like, well, Nick will handle it you know, and you free ride off of them. And I guess like that can create a lot of resentment. So the fact that you just do it voluntarily over decades, it's just, I think it's an unusual trait and I'm not trying to flatter. I just think it, it is empirically an unusual trait. And I'm, that's why I've been trying to understand your whole life. What is that trait? Why do you do this? Well, I mean, let's be clear. I wouldn't do it if I didn't regard it as fun in some sense, although, you know, there's no to public service without being too pompous about it, I hope. Um, that, that, what else to say? I mean, everybody, everybody has, you know, personal rules for what they do and don't do. And I, I certainly do things that other people would regard as wastes of time. I don't do some things that I regard as wastes of time. So, you know, if I quantified how much spend, time I spent on state list, well, it's quite a lot, but it it's part fun, it's part work in the sense that you know, state list feeds things I write and so forth. Uh, and the question in reverse is, well, you know, what does anybody else spend their time on? You know, because I know a lot of people spend their time on social media, a lot of people spend their time 
uh, you know, playing sport or watching sport. A lot of people spend their time uh, with children or, you know, family care responsibilities at this time of life. I'm fortunate in that I don't have uh, that kind of complication, although I have had that big, big deal in a big deal, uh, uh, as a big deal um, in previous uh, decades. But um, so, you know, I've got, I've got some free time I can use for this purpose. Uh, uh, that's really the beginning and end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, yeah, the, the, there's another way of, of, of looking at it that may be fruitful. Uh, you know, there's a very famous uh, historical book with the title, The Invention of Tradition. Mm. The traditions uh, in the first place have to be invented before they're, you know, handed down. Yeah. And uh, there's lots of little, little, little uh, examples like the kilt in Scotland, which is a big deal as a, uh, an alternative uh, fashion item for men. Now, that was actually uh, an invention, in large part. In fact, it's not very sensible to walk around Scotland most of the time in a kilt because it's just too cold and too wet. Yeah. Um, but in stated terms, you know, a lot of the things that we have were invented. And, uh, you know, come back to the meetings. Um, the very first meeting was set up in London, as I mentioned a few times. And uh, the organizer was actually the, the, the UK distributor, uh, Anna Timberlake. Um, and it's her, her daughter and her son-in-law who run the company now. And Anna Timberlake um, just said, right, at the end of the meeting, we will have wishes and grumbles. And I think that's still a formula used almost everywhere else, wishes and grumbles, right? What 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 do you want from Stata? You know, the, mm. you've got people usually from the company present. What do you want from them? What are your wishes and what are your grumbles? And people call out all sorts of things. And sometimes uh, Stata says, yeah, we'll do that. And sometimes says, Stata people say, we'll, we'll, We'll do that, <laughs> so, yeah. and so on and so forth. But you know that that that's an inventor tradition. Um, you know the the company turn up now. Um, there aren't many communities where the company president will turn up to very many of the meetings, probably with, with the users. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there are companies where the president stands up and says, well, we've got a new iPhone this year or something like that. But uh, right, right. Quite the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it does have that feel. It feel it's a little, uh, the, despite its reputation as being this like, you know, you got to pay for the software. It's a corporate company. It's profit maximizing. You've got this internally. It's It's got this familial kind of thing going on where, the, where you've even got the president coming to the user meetings and stuff and people yeah. too. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a question I don't have a better answer to than anybody else is how is software moving? Because there is uh, obviously a lot of interest uh, in entirely free and entirely open source software. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to tell anybody else what they should be doing. That's stupid. Uh, wouldn't mm-hmm. be stupid. Um, I, I just think that Stata is there. Uh, it's a big deal if individuals need Stata and uh, 
their institutions or workplaces won't provide it and they can't afford it, that's a big deal. And sorry, I'm not a billionaire, so I can't help you out by buying Stata for you. Um, <laughs> right. But apart from that, I, I just think that, um, you know, the price of liberty very often is chaos, as it were, that uh, some of these other open source communities, you know, there's no one in charge. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's going to be a problem. Uh -huh. That's going to be a problem, I think, in many cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's also a way, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and be an economist, but don't you talk about sunk, sunk costs or is it sunk capital? Yeah, not sunk cost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that is an issue. I mean, it's either benign or malign, depending which way I think about it, that if you've invested a lot of time and effort, especially time in learning some stuff and using some stuff, then you're, you're very reluctant to, uh, yeah. Uh, to move to something else. Now, I, I spent uh, essentially, to work it out, 20, 25 years playing around with all sorts of different software and then uh, found Stata and have concentrated on that for most of the last 20, 30 years. Um, and I can see the younger people more likely to move around, try different things and all sure. of it, and that's fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, we call it, I mean, there's lots of stuff to call that, but I mean, one is the, the just the concept of human capital you build up all this human capital and stay there you got relationships you got but you also have you know things build on each other and switching costs can be really hard if any of that human capital is stuck at stata it's not portable yeah. you know there's they call it firm specific capital versus market specific capital and it has implications for wages and stuff. But like, I mean, you know, I think Stata has, you have firm specific capital. And I hear that that's less the case with a true programming language, you know, then there's a lot more fluidity. But, um, you know, the, the, I guess I kind of want to end a little bit with two more things. You know, I, I think that sometimes when you're a kid, you think, oh, what's the scientific method? And the scientific method is, you'll hear, at least in America when I grew up, was was like, well, you have a thesis, you have a hypothesis, you, you have an experiment, you do the experiment, you look at the results and you change the hypothesis. And so, but as I've aged, I've realized, you know, the sci the, that science is supported, the product, the aggregate production of science is supported by a bunch of, a bunch of things people don't know about. And that's things like, uh, people that run conferences, people that run workshops, people that, um, you know, run edit journals, people that provide ref comments to the journals and, you know, people that get on listservs and help answer questions on listservs. And I, and I wanted to just kind of say, you know, and I think that the people my age, I'm 47, I graduated in 07. I think that my friends, would absolutely just say absolutely yes to this, which is, I think a lot of us probably owe bits and pieces of our career to the work you've done uh, at Stata. And, you know, I can already tell you're it's very humble, but I think that's really true. The, the answering of questions, the, the, the helping in all the invisible ways of just organizing that listserv, of other people, and I don't want to like, you know, not recognize them. They're just not on this call right now. But I think Nick Cox 
is is really a legend uh very very much a legend amongst empirical microeconomists and i'll also say this nick is that you know i'm not uh a great uh economist and i'm not a great you know programmer statistician but i've always just had been in the back not even in the back of my mind i've just always watched you on the listserv and i've just kind of thought he's the guy that's going first he's the guy that's putting himself out there every single day connecting people and because he's doing that it's working it's not just him and again you know i know it's other people but it's you know you you have been i think a central figure and people probably got tenure probably someone out there got tenure or got a paper published because you just you do answer all those questions and you have built up a community that provides it's a part of the scientific process i just don't think like you know 200 years ago it was like a guy with a pen and paper and you know and now or you know it's a guy watching an apple fall but now i think it's very complex and and the people like you are a really really important part of the story of economics to be completely honest i think you're a big important story of economics and i just wanted to recognize that and say it because you know I think it's how my generation feels. Uh, and I know that, you know, you're over in England, but you don't hear us talk with such reverence for you. I remember this first time I remember my co-author and your name came up. We were both assistant professors. We were both working in his office. Your name came up and he just goes, man, the public goods that guy provides and I was really inspired and I, and part of my career has been, you know, uh, I want to be just like you, you know, not just like you cause you're doing your own thing. I just, but like, I really have been, I have really looked up to you and I just wanted to kind of say that cause I, you know, don't feel like you can say that on the state of list servants, you know, that's pro probably, I'm going to get in trouble for that, but I, I really wanted to say that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I mean, I think we're close to closing, as it were. I mean, just, just to be oblique, uh, I mean, I too uh, teach uh, what I think are the rudiments of scientific method, but that lecture doesn't include comments like, well, actually, 40% of scientific method is probably data management and trying to work out what graph to draw. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 you know, we often ask, why don't you teach data management? And uh, there are various answers to that. One is, how do you teach data management? <laughs> so, yeah. The other answer is, you don't want to scare the students. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Just tell them quite how much time there, you know, even if it comes from yeah. a reputable source, the amount of work you have to do to, uh, you know, get the data even in the right shape and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's important detail too. Well, last question. This is a weird one, but I want you to imagine it happens. You're at home. You're, you're doing what you're, you're, you're reading your, uh, your newest uh, American mystery novel. And you notice 
uh, a spaceship comes down and it outwalks you. And it is you when you were a young man, 20, 25 years old. And he comes to you and he says, I only have five minutes, but they said I could come. Uh, what do you think I need? What would you, what do you think now that you've been around, what do you think is the really important parts of the career? And what are the parts of the career that, you know, I'm going to learn really are not the important parts? Oh, well, I, yeah, I, I think everyone has to follow their style. And uh, for most people, it will be, you know, finding some set of linked questions. I mean, what, what I've done is it's not a pattern for everyone by any means. Um, but, uh, you know, just try to help. I mean, uh, what is what is research? I mean, I, I know of plenty of fields where reputable research is what gets, uh, you know, 20 other people really excited who are working on the same thing. And uh, I've done a little bit of that, probably. Uh, but uh, what I've mostly done is, as we were trying to trying to push forward tools that thousands of people use, even if there are only sort of details in what they do. I mean, uh, so that that but that wasn't planned. That just happened by accident, really. I mean, quite a few of the things that I've written, I've just written because someone asked, "How do you do that?" And then you realize. Oh, it actually is quite uh, quite more, more general, and a lot of people might end up using that. Yeah, yeah. Follow your star. Follow your star. Yes. Yeah. Old device, cliche, if you like, but uh, it's a cliche because it's true, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, there is a line in Nero Wolf that uh, things become trite by by <laughs> by being true, as it were. <laughs> right. More concisely put than that, more elegantly put than that, but that's that's the idea. Yeah. Well, Nick, it's been uh, a real honor, um, and I'm so glad you've been on the show and uh, giving me two hours of your time. I know that you're busy, but I just wanted to say thank you, and uh, I hope that our paths cross in person, and then uh, you can tell me what kind of beer you drink, or if you don't drink beer, what you drink, and then I'll get it for you. I owe you a lot. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a great privilege to be on the show. Gotta see us through. Honey, you need me. Baby, I need